booklet this go round, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> thought we was going to have to put chapters in there and table of contents, but um, but uh, I, there's a, a tremendous amount of stuff that's taking place here uh, in these verses. And tonight we're going to focus on verses four through seven, which is really the history of creation. Uh, chapter two, in light of reading verse one, chapter one and chapter two, there was many who come along and say well, these contradict each other, or these aren't the same, or how come it says that God made all this stuff in chapter 1, and then he tells us about it again in chapter 2? Anybody ever wanted that? I, I have, right? Um, but when we study this and we look at it, we're going to see that what God is doing in chapter 2 is he is reiterating and not revising what he's done, but rather showing in some more detail about what has taken place in the previous days before. In some ways, even, the way that chapter 2 is reading, it is almost reading more so and less of the grand scope of God's view of the creation and more of man's view of the creation, of what God has done in this sort of detail of making man and creating the garden for man and the way in which everything else is going to play. What we're going to see in these verses, in verses 4 through 17, really throughout the next two chapters, is going to set up the whole rest of the book of Genesis as well as the rest of the Bible. These chapters are going to be so critically important in understanding who man is, what it means to be made in his image, what it means to be fallen in our nature, because we're going to see the fall in just a chapter. We're going to be seeing what marriage is supposed to look like, the role of man, the, the role of, of uh, female, the role of the home, the importance of, uh, of running or, or fleeing, fighting sin. And we're going to see the importance of worship. We're going to see the ultimate goal and end of man, which is, as we're going to see, to worship and obey God. That sounds elementary, but it was so elementary that Adam could not even keep and do that one simple thing. And so I want to begin here tonight by reading verses 4 through 7, and then we're just going to work our way through. Because these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now this is as far as we're going to make it tonight. This is chalked full of all sorts of goodies. First of all, the phrase, these are the generations of, seems Somewhat insignificant if you and I just read it, but we have to understand that this is going to be taking place throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Uh, when you, you've probably heard the phrase, when you read a therefore, stop and ask, what's the therefore, therefore? In Genesis, when you see these are the generations of, stop and pay close attention because what's happening is it's sort of going to be changing chapters, if you will. It's changing the people that it's now focusing on or the, the group or the generation that it's focusing on. As one commentator puts it, the refrain, these are the generations, divides Genesis into sections at 2 4, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 10, chapter 27, uh, or sorry, excuse me, verse 27 of chapter 11, uh, chapter 25, verse 12, and verse 19, chapter 36, verse 1, and verse 19, and chapter 37, verse 2. They say that's a whole lot of times it says that. Why does it do so? In the broad scheme, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you're going to see that chapter 5 deals with the next generation that's going to lead up to Noah. Uh, chapter 6 is going to be dealing with Noah's day and age and life. Chapter 10 and 11 dealing with 
the aftermath after the ark and, and the Tower of Babel. And then chapter 25 and chapter, uh, chapter 36, dealing with the generations to follow Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and going down to Joseph. And so this is the whole flow of the book of Genesis, and we're going to see it. Now further, he says, the word generations, which is the Hebrew toledot, properly means offspring. And here it corresponds to all the host of them, which is what verse 1 tells us, but it can have the wider sense of family, history, uh, facing either the past, as in the family registrations of 1 Chronicles 7.4, or the future, as in Ruth 4.18, according to context. The view taken here and defended in the introduction is that this phrase in Genesis always looks forward, introducing a new stage of the book. What we often do when we read the Bible is we read through it, especially if we have a daily reading, we get in the habit of just going, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day God ended his rest, right? and we just go through and we say, whoa, well, look what we read. But if we pick up on these key phrases, I, I encourage you to get you, um, and I can try to point you in the right direction, something to get you like a, not necessarily even a Bible commentary, but like an introduction to the Bible, or some things that give you overviews of the books of the Bible, and some details, because it's going to help you to understand and to break down of going, what is this book talking about? Why is it talking about it? Where is it going? Where is God in this? What's he doing? Because what often happens is we forget that this is covering from some, up to this point, 6,000 plus years of history and 66 books. And so much of Genesis is going to cover in a few short chapters about 2,000 years of history. And so there's a whole lot of stuff here we've got to understand, pick up on these phrases to help us better understand the Bible for ourselves. And so looking at this, we have to understand that Genesis, first of all, is literal. And it is a literal history book. These things, we have to understand, either happened and they're true, or they didn't happen. And that's what separates, I believe today, those who truly know God and those who claim to know God. We cannot throw out parts of Genesis or any part of Scripture whatsoever, not even one verse, especially if it's a verse we don't like. That's the verse we need the most. We need the whole book. And what has happened is, especially since the mid-1800s or so, once Marxism comes along and Darwinian evolution comes in, which, by the way, is not a theory, it's a religion that's been taught. And so since that has happened, and the church at the time did not have the proper response or answer, which they should have, the proper response and answer then was not, let me give you all these apologetical um, ten uh, reasons why, but rather just to go, thus saith the Lord. It was good enough for every Old Testament prophet. It was good enough for Jesus. It was good enough for John the Baptist. It was good enough for the apostles. It, was a good, it should be good enough for us, right? God says what God says. God means what God means. Therefore, take God at his word. And to take God at his word is truly the foundation of what Adam was supposed to do in the garden, right? To take God at his word. If you eat, you will die. Adam goes, I don't know. Let me try it, right? She didn't die, right? So uh, tries it, uh, spiritual death, right? Boom, now we're naked. And everything's terrible. And now all of us, born the same way, and our nature is to go, oh, well, God said, well, you know, maybe. He might be right. Faith is truly taking God at his word. It's, it's full commitment, full belief. So the book of Genesis, which is called, the word Genesis, beginnings, is a history book. This is the account of the real God who literally creates, by the power of his word, creates man for a higher purpose, Man falls, thrusting the world into sin and death, and then continuously calls out a people who he will covenant himself to 
by faith. Now that sounds like a, a mouthful, but really it's the idea of all of, of Scripture. It's the same of today. That the same God of Genesis 1-1 is the same God of Revelation 22. It's the same God who has called us and saved us and sealed us and has drawn us. And by the way, what it means to be covenanted with, it's promised. That God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. He is the one who makes the best of promises and keeps the promises fully. It is not man who does so. What we're going to see later on is this key figure throughout all of human history, and his name is going to be Abraham. And God is going to make a covenant with him, and then his son, and then his son, and all the way through, leading down, ultimately pointing to the covenant of the new covenant that is in Christ and through his blood. But the idea is that God is going to have these folks all throughout these little breaks that we've just talked about, these little refrains of these are the generations. And each one of these folks, each we're going to see how God continuously seeks out these people to redeem. That, that what we see when we find this phrase that we are to pause, see what God has done in the previous section, and see and prepare ourselves for what God is about to do in the next section. All right? It is much like in the book of Psalms where you see the, the, with the words Selah, you know, to, to pause and reflect. When we see throughout Genesis, and, and we're going to see it, underline it, highlight it, something, and all these verses as we come to it, and go, pause, look back at what God has just been doing, and now prepare yourself for what he is about to do, because it's going to be a continuation of the covenant of redemption, of him redeeming back a fallen man. Furthermore, the phrase will show us the different people and places that will be used to rule God in God's theocratic kingdom over his creations. We've talked about God as king. There is no other king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He alone rules his creation. Why? Because he's the only one that created it. There's no one else that is like God. So therefore, he has the sole responsibility, the sole authority, the sole... Um, uh, he's the only one that, that has the right or privilege to rule over creation. But what God does in his creation is he sets up what we call in the theological world a theocracy. That is taking the two words of theocracy part of ruling and the theos of God. What is how God is ruling. So notice that in the garden, who is going to be the one who's the ruler having dominion? Adam. How about later on? We're going to see it gets passed on of these are the generations of. It's going to go through the lineage of what we call the lineage of faith. All throughout these generations that are going to be given over the next few chapters, what's going to say, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and there's a whole lot of begatting. This is very important because what it's going to do is show us a whole lineage who is begat and who don't follow the Lord, and therefore they are part of the lineage of unbelief or a lost lineage or a part of what we're going to see later on as the seed of the serpent. And that follows all the way through to today. Those who don't know Christ today, you know whose seed they are? That of the devil. Right? They're not of, of, of our father. They are children of the devil, seed of the devil. How about those who are in Christ today? Well, they are part of what we're going to see throughout the book of Genesis, those who are the lineage or the seed of faith, the seed of the woman, those who trust in the one who comes through the woman, you know, who is going to lead to Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh. God comes to man because man cannot get to God because of separation. But here we're going to see that the garden is a beautiful place where God and man exist together. Man is meant to enjoy his presence. Man is, enjoy, uh, is meant to enjoy worship and to know God in a personal and in a deep level. But it is sin that drives man out of the garden. The sin that drives you and I away from God. That's why redemption is the whole story of the Bible. Furthermore, 
uh, one commentator deals with this uh, verse and says, The creation of the universe forms the starting point of the account of the development of the human race through the generations of Adam and is recapitulated for that reason. So here the creation of the universe is mentioned as the starting point to the account of its historical development. Because this account looks back to particular points in the, the creation itself and describes them more minutely as the preliminaries to the subsequent course of this world, the idea is this. As we see, these are generations, these are generations. We're going to continue to see what God is building upon what he has done. But everything that takes place in the rest of this book and in all of human history comes out of God and God alone. He is the founder, the originator. It is all because of him. God is literally in this book telling the account of creating a people to redeem and restore for their good and his glory. You and I, as we've talked about this past Sunday morning, how can we fathom in our brain who has the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who, who can even begin to make the plans to save souls like he had? Or we wouldn't dream of it. If you and I dreamed of it, we'd go, well, just stick man in a garden and put some clothes on him and don't put a bad tree in there. <laughs> right? And we would go, well, why did God even do it? We're going to see the grand scheme as we go through this. The second, the next phrase. It's important in this verse. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That means everything on the earth, in the earth, through the earth, is made by the Lord God. That means everything in the heavens, which is offside of this earth. Everything, as the Bible tells us later on in Colossians chapter 1 or in, in Romans 8, that everything that is visible or invisible, it is everything that has ever been made, whether we can see it or not, God is the one who has made it. Now, I want to point out the phrase, the Lord God made. First of all, it was uh, Salhammer writes, the special relationship humankind enjoys by having been created in God's image may already be seen in the title by which God is known in chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 are going to cover uh, and, and use this phrase over and over. As a matter of fact, in verses 4 through 7, we find the Lord God once, twice, three times for a reason. The Lord, then we see it in verse 8. Right? It's going to be how he's referred to because there is to be no mistaking who this God is. Remember, Moses is writing this book. God has given this book to Moses. During this time, Moses is literally surrounded by a whole group of pagans. They have gods for everything. And they've got hundreds and thousands of gods everywhere, right? According to their little brains. And they worship these false gods and false deities. And what God is doing by giving Moses this title, the Lord God is showing that there is none like me. Everyone else can have their own little beliefs and sincere thoughts about their gods and goddesses and you know, rocks and trees that they worship. But I'm the one who made the rocks and trees. I'm the one who made what those gods are formed and fashioned out of. And that's why every other god that we look at who is a false god, they're made out of these images of, of trees or of gold or silver. Who made those things? The one true God, the Lord God. The title Lord God is a combination of two names for God. One, God, which is the word Elohim, used in Genesis 1 to speak of the all-powerful creator. And two, Lord, which is also translated as Yahweh, which is explained in Exodus 3 as the God who is with you. The combination of the two names more than likely means that Yahweh is the true God. It is rare in the Bible. It is used throughout Genesis 2 and 3, but elsewhere in the Pentateuch only used in Exodus 9.30. So when we see the Lord God, we have to think about 
immediately who God is, that he is the only true God, that he is the God who is as well present with man, present with his creation. So it, it tells us three main things about God that we've said many times if you've been in church any length of time. God is omnipotent. He is the all-powerful God. That it is God who, by the word of his mouth, by his own divine decrees and plans, has spoken all of these things into proper order and existence to procreate and to give him glory. And then secondly, that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There is nothing that has escaped his knowledge or foresight or thought. This means as well that when God made the angels, you know what he also knew? That there would be a third of them that would fall with Lucifer, who would rise up against him full of pride and desire his own seat, and he would cast them out, and that would be that same one who would be there to tempt Eve in the garden, who then would be the one to turn to Adam, and who then would be the one to thrust all of humanity into sin. God knows these things, but all the while he also knows that in that eternal decree, the second person of that triune, thrice holy God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Son is going to be enrolled in flesh, come to the same earth, be the seed of the woman who has promised to be the Redeemer, Messiah, of all those who trust in Him. God has this all planned out. This world, is, in all of human history, is just an outworking of the divine decrees and knowledge of God. That, that should make us either want to shout or make us go to sleep at night peacefully. Right? That, that knowing that there is nothing that has escaped the mind or hand of God. Lastly, it brings us that He is omnipresent. He is the all-present God. God is present in the past. He's present now. He's present in the future. Why? Because He is everlasting and everlasting. He is the eternal one. Eternity itself is wrapped up in who God is. It's mind-boggling to try to think about eternal things. You and I can't even begin to take a, a whole bucket of sand and begin to try to count every grain, right? I mean, putting together a, a jigsaw puzzle is, is difficult enough. I mean, once we get past 10, 20 pieces, I'm done, I'm out, right? 100, we're not getting there. 1,000, definitely not doing it. But now counting the... Uh, just one five-gallon bucket of sand, there's no way that's happening, let alone all the sand of the sea, all the sand or the dust of the ground. Yet God knows all these things, and He's present in all these things. He is there. He is the eternal, everlasting God. So when we see the Lord God, know that this is the one true God. Know that this is the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the all-present God, that there is none like Him. Because those other false gods aren't everywhere at once. They are not all-powerful, and they are not all-knowing. There are things that surprise them and catch them off guard. As a matter of fact, you want proof, go read, and I even encourage you this, go read a little bit of uh, Greek or, or Roman mythology, and you'll see that the gods need the men to worship them in order to stay gods. Or they, they uh, go, oh, I can't believe they did this. I'm going to throw down a lightning bolt, right? And they get caught off guard. So they're not all-powerful, they're not all-knowing, they're not self-sufficient or self-pleasing. They are in need. They're weak and puny in the sight of the one true God. Why? Because they're just false gods. They're lowercase gods. They're, they're made-up gods. Ultimately, it's man worshiping self or the devil. It is man taking what they want God to be like and then worshiping that, which to change the image of God is to live the opposite way of how we were created. We were made in the image of God, not God made in our image. And furthermore, 
the issue of the Lord God is something to note here, and it's not in your notes, but it's in mine, so I want to share it with you. There is something to note about his title, Lord God. Later on in chapter 3, the serpent, when he speaks, he says, Yea, hath God said? He does not say Lord God. But earlier on in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now why is that important? Because it shows the serpent does not use the double title in the conversation or seduction of Eve. It shows that the serpent does not know God as Lord. To know God, Elohim, that's one thing, right? He was the one that was created and was very much in the presence. As the Bible describes Lucifer, he was there. He was, a, he was an angel who, I believe, an angel of music, an angel who is a covering angel of the glory of God. If anyone's up close and personal with the glory of God and knows who God is, it's him. But full of pride, he, he, he leaves and, and a third go along with him. And then we find that though, because of that, he does not submit to him as Lord, or as we just talked about, Yahweh. It's the idea that Satan knows he's God, but he doesn't submit to him as Lord God. That difference is key to being saved or being lost, to being regenerate, right, born again, or being a rebel. To know God, well, everybody knows who God is. It's man that suppresses the truth and the righteous that denies the existence of God. Even the devils fear and tremble. They know. But how about this? The issue of salvation is that we must know that He is Lord, that He is Yahweh, that He's more than just a God or God, but that we submit to His Lordship. This is absolutely critical to understanding our walk in Him, that He is not just God, Elohim, but that He is Lord, Yahweh. Furthermore, we have then the description of the land. Verse number 5 says, And every plant... Now, do you all know what the word every means? It means every, right? It's very simple. That's not just the English, right? It, it means literally everything that was made. There are some who say, well, you know, not everything was made until after the fall, and that's where other stuff comes along. And there are many who promote that. I believe what this says, that every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Now, this is interesting. Why is there no rain yet? First of all, one writes, when God first created vegetation on the third day of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, 13, man was not yet, or man was not yet been created to care for the vegetation of the earth, and there was no rain. The thick blanket of water vapor in the atmosphere created on the second day of creation, Genesis 1, verse 6 through 8, made for no rain cycle as we know it, but for a rich system of evaporation and condensation resulting in a heavy dew or groundfall. So I believe what's taking place there is much like what we might see near a river. Y'all ever seen a river? All right, me too, right? <laughs> That's where y'all have been going. Like, right? y'all, seen, y'all have seen more rivers than I have, right? Y'all remember, the, some of y'all might remember when that river was just a creek. <laughs> but the river, think about this. Now, when we lived in Danville, we lived near the river, right? The Dan River in Danville cuts through the city. It, it's a wide old river through there. And you notice that around it, that in the mornings, there's a fog, right? And there's a fog and a mist that almost seems to come. So what is this? We're going to see here in just a few short verses, not tonight, is that there's rivers, 
four of them coming from a single source, and that it's going to certainly be used for irrigation of the plants as well as for bringing up this water vapor or cloud to uh, bring down not rain, but rather to continue to take care of these plants. Now, the fact that God had not caused it to rain upon the earth shows the severity of his judgment in just a few short chapters in the Genesis flood and shows his absolute authority over creation. This is going to make Genesis chapter 6 even more frightening. You and I, when we hear about a flood, we go, well, floods are bad. But when we hear about thousands of years and there not being rain, and then all of a sudden there's a crazy guy for 120 years building a boat with his kids and saying, rain's coming, judgment's coming, repent, get in this ark when it's ready or else you're going to die. And everyone goes, rain? What are you talking about rain? But what do I need to get that big boat for? You must be crazy. It ain't raining all these years. What's it going to start for now, right? And then what did it do? It didn't just rain a little bit. It was not just even rain, but water bursting forth as geysers up from the ground. And uh, I believe a canopy from the the top bursting down and, and bringing forth absolute terror and destruction, killing all except for those inside the ark. It shows the severity of what it does. But as well, it shows that God is the authority over all these things. Anyone here have a garden or keep a garden or farm or eat a vegetable? All right. <laughs> right? Yeah. I might not keep a garden, but I eat a vegetable every now and again, right? It comes from the ground. And what has to happen for that? Got to have some rain. Or you got to at least have some water to water them plants, don't you? Now, what happens is I hear farmers all the time or gardeners who talk about it and talk about the weather and they say, well, Sure could use some rain. And then if it rains too much, you go, sure could use some dry, (laughs) right? And we're never quite satisfied with the weather, but what we do know this, and I always hear the following phrase right after either one of those is saying, and that is, the good Lord knows best. I hear that, I think, more than out of the mouth of a gardener or a farmer than anyone else. Because they know that it is God who causes the rain. It's God who brings a drought. It's not the weatherman who caused the weather by, by, behind you, right? He don't, he don't get to decide what the weather's going to be for the week or, or, or two. It is God alone who does these things. It is God alone who has created the patterns of the earth. It is God alone who I believe as well. When there is severe weather, certainly there is a, an extent to where God can use the weather in signs of judgment. He's done it all throughout the Bible. I certainly don't see a reason why he would not stop that today. So I want to give you a couple of verses. One, Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 15 and 16. Jeremiah 51, verses 15 and 16. It says, He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heaven by his understanding. That's chapter 1 of Genesis, right? When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Who controls the earth? It comes forth from him. I want to give you another couple of verses. Psalm 107, verse 33 and 34. Psalm 107, verse 33 and 34. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Who causes the drought? God. Matter of fact, it, it, my mind goes to a time where uh, he's got a prophet sitting at the brook of Cherith and everything is going good. He's feeding him by a, a, bringing a raven to, 
take care of his daily needs. And that brook, as long as it's got water, he's got food, he's got water, he's got shelter from, from those who would do him harm. But eventually the brook dries up. Why would God do such a thing to his prophet? Well, because the following verses over there tell us that that prophet then goes on to meet a widow woman to make sure a, a testing of her faith and brings about an abundance where she keeps on cooking and making food and she don't run out when she should have. She went to make the last cakes, the last meal for her and her son. And then she says, then we're going to die. We're, we're having a last meal. We're, that's it. Then the boy does die, but the prophet's then there to be used to raise him up. So what do we find? God will drop a brook to get a prophet on the move to see life changed. We never know what God does, why it rains and why it doesn't rain. We don't know why it rains on the just or the unjust. We know that it rains. We know that when it's dry, it's dry. We know that God is in control, and therefore we take rest and refuge knowing that God knows best and that God has His reasons, that His ways are not our ways. It also tells us well, though, that the world at this time was, I believe, incredibly radically different pre-flood. Everyone wants to know, and, and probably some of the most questions I get in the book of Genesis are before the flood. Because there's this big, long period of time and about that many details about that bit of time. I'm as curious as you are. I love to read about it, to try to figure it out, to think through these things. And I mean, I'll just sit there and think and, and chew on it and go, I, I wonder about some of these things. But at the end of the day, I believe that what we're going to see is he shows us that there's not a man until the ground. He hadn't caused it to rain. It shows that life for them, it's alluding to the fact that it's about to all change for both that man and for the rest of the world. That the world is going to see a catastrophe of a flood that's going to destroy everything and change the whole earth geographically and in, in, in every which way. And as well as that the man who there's not there to till the ground is one day going to have to. The addition that there was not a man to till the ground is alluding to the future of Adam's work and future judgment that man will have to toil in the ground because of the fall. Now, the fall is coming. The judgment is coming. Even as we see Genesis 1-1, we're promised the end of Revelation that if there's a beginning, that there's an ending. If we see that things are good and there's a perfect garden, a perfect place, it also gives sort of this foreshadowing that things are about to change drastically and not for the better. But even in the midst of things changing, not for the better, that God promises through those things to be faithful, to never change, to be the same God, but as well promises those who go through those things by faith that a Savior, a Redeemer of all of humanity, of all creation is coming. The creation itself is groaning, longing for that day. A day has come at Calvary and the day is coming as well when Christ returns again. Then we get to Verse number 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Man is literally formed from dust. And we hear the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, oftentimes at funerals or things, and especially in the movies. That's where they always put it. And I, when I went to do my first funeral, I thought, i I got to say that. It's in the movies, right? You know, that's what you think about. You know, I'm like, they didn't teach that in preacher school, but I mean, it's, it's in the movies, in the westerns and stuff, you know. But man is formed from dust. It shows a couple things. David Guzik writes, when the Bible speaks of dust, 
It means something of little worth. Associate with lowliness and humility. Genesis 18, 1 Samuel 2, and 1 Kings 16. In the Bible, dust isn't evil and isn't nothing, but it's next to nothing. Think about this. At least a couple times a week, or at least once a week, or maybe once a month or, or a year, I don't know, once a season, you've got to do some dusting in your house, don't you? You normally, right, it's never fun. There's no one in here who likes to dust. Even those who are, maybe one, everybody take note of that. When you need your dusting, all right, give her a call, all right? But when, when you've got to dust, you're never happy about it, right? You see it, and you go, you test it first, and you go, wow, right? Because then you've made that little mark on the TV screen or on the entertainment center coffee table, and you go, well, now I've got to do the rest of the thing, right? And you know it's something so small that, we never see the dust until a couple of weeks later when we first do that swipe. Isn't it? The light has to hit it right. It's something so small, so insignificant. It's not like the snow where we literally watch it come down and begin to accumulate. If you watch it snow hard for a couple of hours, what do you notice? It's accumulating. You can watch that take place, but with dust, we don't watch it happen. It's just like we wake up and, man, the house is dusty. I've got to fix this. Dust seems so insignificant. Which is why for man to be made in the image of God is so significant. The fact that God takes perhaps the most insignificant of things in all of creation, dust and dirt, and forms and makes man, shows us what he believes that there is a purpose for us, a higher purpose. Because for everything else, he just says, hey, throw an elephant out there. There's a giraffe. There's a a sloth. There's a dinosaur. There's a this. There's a that. But this gives us the idea that God formed, that, man, that when God formed man, it gives the imagery of a sculptor taking a lump and pressing into shape something. If you've ever done a clay model or played with Play-Doh, it's probably the closest that most of us have get to artistic ability. You take Play-Doh and what do you do with it? Right? You can form and fashion and make something. And most of us don't do great things or make great things with Play-Doh, but You take someone who is a true artist and give them all the tools that they need and clay and and a kiln to make it hard, what happens? You can have beautiful artwork, can't you? You can have tremendous tools and clay pots and vessels and, and such beautiful things out of something that seems so insignificant. But many times what you'll watch, if you watch those videos of them doing it or watch them, that thing will be smitten and they're forming and shaping and forming and shaping and things are going good and then what happens one little nick, and then the whole thing starts to crumble. And what do they do? They crumble it back. They ball it up. They throw it back down and start over, don't they? What are we going to find over in Genesis chapter 6? There's some fall happening. God's going to pick it up, throw it down, keep going forward. And we see, though, that it is God who is the potter and that man who is the clay. God is the originator, initiator, and sustainer of life. God is the originator, initiator, and sustainer of life. This is the common illustration used throughout the scriptures that is given to describe the relationship with God, Israel, the church, and, and mankind. Um, just for sake of time tonight, I'm going to give you these verses out loud, but I'm only going to read, read uh, one section. You can read Isaiah chapter 29 and Isaiah 45 to see this illustration of God being the potter and Israel being the clay. But I want to turn to Romans 9 for just a moment, and you can hold your place here if you'd like. Romans chapter 9, verse 19 tells us this about God. It says, 
Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that thou repliest against God? Shall the thing formed, right, fashioned, shaped, say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over this clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only but also of the Gentiles. We find the great truth that it is God who forms and fashions and originates and initiates and sustains not just physical but spiritual life as well. It is God who forms and fashions these things. And what can that which is formed reply to God? Can we say to Him, Lord, that's, that's just not fair. Lord, how come you gave me this nose? Lord, how come you made the giraffe the way you did? Or how come you made this the way it is? How come, how come? Right? We often ask those questions or think those questions, but it is the same God that takes clay. We think about an artist or someone who does take clay pots, especially in the day of Moses and furthermore throughout the New Testament as he gets to here. A lot of stuff was made out of clay. Your soup bowl was made out of clay. And so was your latrine. Same clay. Same product. But formed and fashioned for different purpose and use. But yet still formed the same way by the hands of one who spends the time and effort, energy, and purpose behind that specific thing. Secondly, then, it tells us that God breathed the breath of physical and spiritual life to make Adam, or man, a living soul. The picture of breathing breath in him, if you used to get taught CPR that way, right, the mouth-to-mouth, I think the last time I learned, they're pretty much just, call 911, Keep pumping until people show up. They don't want you, especially nowadays, right? And uh, now if they give anything, it's they give the mouth covers and all this stuff to try to, you know, if you're going to do anything, we don't want any, any contact. The idea here of breathing breath is much like what you used to get taught, right? It's, or here for effect, all right? It's literally breathing face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, if you will, of breathing breath and life into something that has no life. God certainly could have formed man and said, well, there he is. But if he does not breathe life and breath into him, then he's just a doll of dirt. That's it. It is God who breathes this breath of life. This is a picture of literally breathing mouth to mouth to give Adam life. Once more, it shows that God is the source and sustainer of life, and that he plans and initiates it, both physical and spiritual. As well, what we see, there's a reference in John chapter 20, verse 22, and throughout all the book of Acts. We find throughout Scripture the Holy Spirit is referred to and translated as literally as pneuma, or breath, or wind. We find that phrase used already in Genesis 1. We find it throughout the rest of Old Testament. My mind goes to Ezekiel, where the breath breathed onto the dry bones to bring life unto them. And then in the book of Acts, where the wind of God comes, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles and, and does this great and mighty work? Or how about even more specifically for you tonight? The day and moment you got saved, what took place? God breathed the breath of life into your lungs. 
it is His breath in our lungs that allows us to have spiritual life where the moment where we repent and trust Christ and we go, <gasps> we breathe that first breath after amen, what, I mean, it's, we are a new creature. We are now formed and fashioned to truly be made daily into His image. And even to the degree that God breathes this physical and spiritual new life into us that we were dead and now we're <gasps> living and breathing for His glory and for all of eternity now to have His breath in us, His life in us. It's beautiful. A wonderful picture of what God does physically for man to make Adam, but even more so, and man became a living soul. Now, there's some who argue that man is a man with a soul or that man is a soul who's in the form of a man. Irregardless, what we find is the same truth that God makes man for a high purpose, for a high calling, and He does so with a distinction. Nowhere else do we find that God sits there with clay and makes the giraffe or the dinosaur with great detail. He speaks, and there it is. With man, He takes something that is lowly, forms it, fashions it, and breathes life to make Him a living soul, an eternal soul, it pictures something else as well. We often forget, especially if coming out of Christmas time, we talk about Jesus' birth, right? Jesus comes to the earth. What does he put on? Flesh. He is born as an infant in a lowly manger to lowly people, to a virgin girl as promised according to the scripture. And everyone looks and goes, well, it's just another Jewish boy. It wasn't, was he? He puts on the same flesh as He condescends to us to come to us to make a way for us. This wonderful thing points here that while He has this first Adam who's going to be made just of dirt and God has to breathe the breath of life into Him, the second Adam, who is Jesus the Christ, the perfect Adam, the greater Adam, is going to be the one who forms and fashions the very one who's going to birth Him. It's God who makes Mary. It's God who then is there inside of Mary who then comes out of Mary to then one day die for Mary. Right? It's, this, is, this is great detail. And God has His plan long before we get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We can't begin to fathom how great and wonderful and deep these Scriptures are. Now, I want to give you this last quote, and this is where we're going to be done. I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger tonight. <laughs> got to keep you coming back for the second one, right? Salehammer writes, and this is your last portion here in this section of your booklet, chapter 2 makes a further contribution to our understanding of humankind's creation in God's image. This is seen in the author's depiction of the land and the garden prepared for humankind's habitation. The description of the Garden of Eden deliberately foreshadows the tabernacle as it is described later in the Pentateuch. The garden like the tabernacle, was the place where humankind could enjoy the fellowship and presence of God. We've got to get that, right? And we're going to spend the next couple weeks getting that and nailing that down. That the garden is a garden. But the garden is the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, and that Adam, we're going to get into this detail later, so don't ask me after service because you'll have to come back in a week or two. Adam... His role is not to be gardener, farmer, Joe here, but it's to be a priest of the tabernacle, to keep it cleansed and pure 
from sin. And where Adam is going to fail as a priest and as a prophet and as a king, ruling and have dominion over the creation, over his wife, over all these things, and as well as being the prophet to his wife to tell her, hey, God said don't eat that thing, so don't eat that thing. Jesus is going to come later on and is going to fulfill and be a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And guess what? It's going to show later on that one day, here's where we go, all right? And here's where I'm going to leave you. Y'all have heard me talk about this whole circle, how things coming back, Genesis to, to Revelation. Here's where we go, all right? You ready? Let me take this with me because i got to walk for this. This gets me all excited. I, I could just give you all the rest of this tonight and to be just happy for the next three, four hours. I, I, I really could. <laughs> I'm telling you. Anyways. All right, here we go. You ready? In the beginning, God. God creates. Boom, everything is there. Chapter 2 opens up with everything that God made is there. He makes it perfectly, completely. We have a perfect paradise. There is no sin in the garden. However, there is a potential for sin in the garden. We've already seen tonight how these things, how God is forming and shaping and how there's no rain yet and there's no man until the ground are foreshadowing that there's going to be a fall. But the garden itself is foreshadowing something greater. The tabernacle. When does the tabernacle come? The time of Moses. He's the one writing the book of Genesis. And I would even imagine, don't have chapter and verse, that he's probably impossible even writing this inside the tabernacle as God is giving him utterance and words to write. Furthermore, the tabernacle would be the place that would travel and dwell with the people where then Moses and the priests and the high priest each year would have to go in to make atonement so that way the people could have access to God by faith and be cleansed year after year after year after year after year. But the tabernacle was a temporary place. Has anyone ever been to the Garden of Eden? Me neither. Like the tabernacle, a temporary place. Not a perfect, final, and complete place. So then what happens after the tabernacle? They finally get a temple. But even the temple, as solid and as beautiful as it was, did not stay forever, did it? No, as a matter of fact, they had to go through a couple of them throughout their history. But Christ comes along in the flesh and even tells us later on in the Scripture that our bodies are temples, if you will. And Jesus says, you can... As a matter of fact, He says, I'm going to tear the temple down, right? And raise it up in three days. And they said, our Father spent all this time building this temple. And you're going to knock it all down and build it back up? And He says, that's not what I'm talking about, right? And John says... He's not talking about the physical temple there that they're standing in. He's talking about his own body. But then we come back to Revelation. And what do we have? We don't have a Garden of Eden again. Rather, we have a perfect place with no more curse, no more night, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears. We have paradise restored. And it says, and God shall be their God and dwell with his people. Dwell with his people means tabernacle the tabernacle was a picture of the garden we return to a garden-like state but even gooder because when i read revelation 21 and 22 i find the tree of life but i don't find a tree of knowledge of good and evil anymore we're gonna look at that next week here's your cliffhanger <laughs> but uh, let's pray tonight lord we thank you for this time god there's just so much in your word lord gets me excited to see all that you've put there if we would just look so that way we could know you and know you deeper and know more not just about you but know you more lord that's what we need more in our lives than anything else 
is to know you. There's nothing higher, nothing more grand, nothing more satisfying than to know you. God, I pray that that would be uh, on the forefront of our minds and our hearts. And God, that would be our great desire. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these words and to see how you've revealed yourself to us and that we and our hearts would long and look forward to that day. But as well, that we would be mindful that while we live in this temporary world, in this temporary flesh, and in these temporary temples, if you will, Lord, that we would be mindful that we are called to live holy before you and to worship and obey you in all things. Lord, help us be obedient to you, be faithful to you as you are faithful to us. We love you and thank you once more for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all have a good night.